God bless you. Well, if you're new to New Day Church, I'm Pastor Ricky, lead pastor here, and that was the other lead pastor, Joni, and we are an interactive church. Somebody say interactive. Yes, we are. We are interactive because the church is not a building. It's a body of believers, amen? And the church is not a program. It's a people of God, and so we want to have as much interaction with one another as we can, but we are glad that you are here today. And uh, I want to say that uh, we've got some special guests with us, and I'll, I'll um, introduce them in a minute, but we've got another special guest here with us today. And in a few minutes, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you when I preach, I'm going to talk a little bit about authority. And there is something that we need to understand that God has given us authority, amen, but we're also a people under authority. You believe that? We're a people under authority. And uh, I know that most of you in this room right now are part of New Day Church, and we're so happy that you are. Um, But for those of you that may not have found a home church yet, that's part of being part of a body, is getting under authority and being able to be under authority. But here, let me just caution those of you who are looking for a church. Don't be under someone else's authority who's not under someone else's authority. Let me say that again. Don't be under someone else's authority. I'm not preaching yet. Who's not under someone else's authority. In other words, the authority goes all the way up to the head of the church, Jesus. But there is no one who is above authority except Jesus. Amen? He's above all authority. I have authority in my life. I have pastors in my life, just a couple. And one of them is here today. So Pastor Roger and Debbie Lewis are here today. Pastor Roger, would you come for a minute? I won't make Debbie come, but I'll make Roger come. And I want him to greet you. He didn't know I was going to do this. But I want him to greet you because this is my pastor. And many of you have not got to meet him yet. So, Pastor, would you just greet the people? Thank you, Pastor Ricky. I uh, uh, have known Ricky longer than either one of us want to admit. When he, was a, when he was a youth pastor, he went with me on a trip to Boston. And he shared with me an experience I'd actually forgotten. But, uh, and that was about authority. It was kind of a kind of a learning experience, wasn't it? Thirty years ago, wow! You know, you made a good choice to be a part of a local church. Uh, the wisest man that ever lived said that two are better than one because they have a great reward for their work. Uh, that was Solomon, by the way. And um, you know, if I could just real quickly, you know, the strongest horse in the world is a Belgian draft horse. You can take one Belgian draft horse, and he can pull 8,000 pounds. You can put two of them together that have never worked together, have never, never been harnessed together, and they'll pull not, not just 16,000, 8 and 8, but 24,000 pounds. But you can take those two Belgian draft horses and train them together, stall them together. They get to know each other. They understand each other. And those two Belgian draft horses that individually could only pull 8,000 pounds for a total of 16 can pull 32,000 pounds. That's an illustration of what God does in the church. We're better together. We're better together. You made a good choice today. Thank you. Looking forward to hear what God has to say. Thank you, Pastor Roger. Thank you, Debbie, for coming. God bless you. Well, as uh, some of you know, our Wi-Fi is down, so you have to just use your own data today but I'm going to be working with some new technology. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Out of Acts chapter 13, we have been in the book of Acts now between Wednesdays and Sundays for about 
a month and a half, maybe almost two months now, and we're going to continue. Acts chapter 13, verse 4 says, And the two of them, that's Paul and Barnabas, by the way, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. That was John Mark. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. We want to stop there for a minute. Holy Spirit, this is your word. You inspired every word of it. You inspired the men who wrote it. Now, God, I pray you would inspire us today. Let the word of God change our hearts and our minds. Let us walk out of here not just with a nugget of truth, but let us walk out of here changed by the power of your word. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Acts 13 tells us that Paul and Barnabas were set apart for the work of the ministry. This was Paul's first, what we call official, missionary journey. Now, Paul had already been ministering, at this point, most scholars believe, by at least a few years, but this was their first sanctioned missionary opportunity. How many of you know you can do a work for God the minute you're saved? Amen? You can begin to serve God the minute, I mean, 30 seconds after you're saved, you can begin to do something for the kingdom of God. But then there was training. Then there were some things that Paul needed to gain and Barnabas needed to gain, and they needed to know a strategy. And so as they came together and they were sent out by the Holy Spirit and by the local church, they encountered someone, and his name was Sergius Paulus. He was a proconsul, which is like a senator or a congressman in our day, maybe even like a mayor, but more like a senator or a congressman, assigned by the Roman emperor, I believe it was Augustus at the time. So Sergius Paulus had heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he called forth Saul, or Paul, as it's first called now. And Barnabas said, come preach the gospel to me. Come preach this. Man, I wish it was that easy. Don't you wish just people at work would walk up to you and say, can you just preach the gospel to me right now? That'd be so easy. Well, how many of you know it's not always easy? And in this passage, we just discovered that even after he called them, there was an uprising, a man named Bar-Jesus. I need to tell you before we go too far, far into this, and we'll kind of go into this more on Wednesday night, but, but the church wasn't just making strides into the common people and the poor people. The church was literally making strides in the government, in high city and government officials. We already know because of the previous chapters that even some of the priests, some of the higher-ranking priests of the Jewish people began to come to Christ. Some of the leading women in one city began to come to Christ. And now we have government officials seeking out the Word of God, and I'll give you a spoiler alert, he comes to Christ. How many of you know the gospel should go to every segment of society? 
government, education, entertainment. It should go to everything. We believers should be making an impact wherever we are and wherever we go. If all we do is gather here today, if all churches do is gather for an hour or two on a Sunday morning, but don't go out and make a difference, then what are we doing? Mm, I got real quiet. Did I start preaching too fast? Let me tell you, we need to make a difference wherever we are. And you are called to make a difference wherever you are. We're going to get to that in a minute. So not only were they making strides, but anytime you make strides, there's also opposition. Now, I haven't preached in almost two weeks, so you gotta, you got to know that some things have been stirring. And there's some thoughts that have been on my spirit lately. And here's, here's one of them. Nothing worth having comes easy. Now, we just got done with this wedding. Weddings should be the simplest, easiest things in the world. But how many of you know they ain't? <laughs> this was our first, other than our own, to experience in our own children. Man, there was some work to be done. And I'm just so glad for the American culture that says the mother and father of the groom don't have to do that much. I am not looking forward to Emily's wedding day. Oh, come on, somebody. So I praise God for the Rodriguez family who worked so hard. But we did some work. There was a lot of work. But nothing worth having comes easy. Here's another thought. The stronger the soldier, the more intensive the training. I was actually just opening up my notes, and there was a prophetic word given by Rebecca Aris, Alejandro's wife, several years ago. And as I was listening to that word, this came out, and it grabbed me because it's been something I've been thinking about, and I knew exactly why God had had me listen to that word. The stronger the soldier, the more intensive the training. Sometimes we think, oh God, why am I going through this? Why is this such an intense trial? Because he's building in us something. Come on, somebody. I'm going somewhere today. Hold on. Then this thought. The harder fought the battle, the sweeter the victory. The harder fought the battle, the sweeter the victory. When we get on the other side, come on. The harder fought the battle, the sweeter the victory. And I believe that Paul experienced this as his first missionary journey, as his first sanctioned journey to go out. And he goes out into the Gentile world. And here he encounters a a high-ranking official in the Roman government. And as he's ministering, somebody rises up and begins to oppose him. And Paul didn't back down from that. We're going to get to that. He didn't back down to that. Before we get to that, I want to I say this because especially today being Memorial Day. Memorial Day, I was actually talking about this with my kids on the way back from Abilene this weekend. I said Memorial Day is really not about those who are living. It's a day to remember those who have given the ultimate sacrifice. It's about my father who didn't give the ultimate sacrifice on the battlefield in World War II, but he saw many men give the ultimate sacrifice on that battlefield in France. He saw people die, and it affected him to even his dying day when I would ask him day after day sometimes, Daddy, tell me more about the war. He'd say, there's not much to tell. He'd been on the battlefield. There was much to tell, but... There was much he didn't want to tell because some of his friends 
gave that ultimate sacrifice. And I'm so grateful for those who fought for our freedoms and paid that ultimate sacrifice. But even though I recognize what the meaning of Memorial Day is, I also think we should remember those who give up their freedoms every day to ensure ours. And I want to say thank you to those of you who have served and who continue to serve. We're going to be sending one of our own out here in a few weeks to continue to serve. And I just say thank you for your service. Thank you for all that you do to keep us free. Can somebody say amen to that? You know, I often look at missionaries and soldiers in the same light. They carry their weapons of righteousness to bring peace and to overthrow darkness and evil wherever they go. That's really what our American soldiers do, and I thank you for that. Now let's get back to the scripture, Acts 13, verse 9. It says, Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus, remember who he was, the sorcerer, and said, You are a child of the devil. He wasn't talking to his kids. He was literally talking to a sorcerer right now. And an enemy, that was a joke, and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you, and you are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul, watch this, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now, would you look at that last sentence for a second? When the proconsul saw what had happened, what did he see happen? He saw Paul speak a prophetic word to Eliamus the sorcerer, and Eliamus goes blind. Now, how many of you know that just seems a little weird? Can we just be honest? I mean, aren't we supposed to be making the blind see, right? (laughs) Aren't we supposed to be speaking over people, be healed? But in this case, Elimus had put himself in direct opposition and had become an enemy, not only of Paul and Barnabas, but literally of God himself. And so Paul, like the prophets of old, like Elijah, (laughs) basically called down fire. And I'm glad he didn't have physical fire in this situation. But a mist came over him. The Bible doesn't say he was blind for all of his days. In fact, it says that he gave him grace and just said for a time. I don't recommend this prayer. Unless it's warranted. But typically, it won't be warranted. Mm. I'll just let that rest. I want you to see this, that it wasn't just what the proconsul saw, but it's what he heard. It says, even though he saw this, he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. How many of you know signs and wonders should follow the word? I believe that signs, wonders, and miracles will follow the word that's according to Scripture, but I'm not going to sit on that today. I want to move on. Because I want you to see that Saul was not intimidated by the enemy. He could have been. He could have said, oh, man, I didn't, I mean, I I knew that I was going to get opposition from Jews, but I mean, from, from a sorcerer, 
from a guy who, who was lauded as somebody spiritual and somebody who had power. But no, Saul was not intimidated by the enemy. And I want to tell you today that overcoming intimidation is a key to defeating the enemy in our life day after day. Overcoming intimidation is a key to defeating the enemy in our life. Like the shepherd boy David, Paul had an attitude of engagement. He had an attitude of engagement. Paul was willing to engage and hear the difference, people of God. Paul didn't go looking for a fight. But when the fight came to him, he was willing to engage. There are some who, who you know, call themselves whatever and have crazy names about their Christian. If you've been around Christian world for very long, especially the Pentecostal charismatic world, you've seen some weird stuff. And even, I would say, some flaky stuff. I've seen some weird and flaky stuff. I've seen people trying to do crazy things. And I I don't want to judge them, but some of it's just weird. Some of it's just crazy. That wasn't Paul. Paul was not going to pick a fight. He was going to rescue those who were dying, to bring light into the darkness. But how many of you know when you turn the light on, the roaches will run? That has new meaning after yesterday, after being in a house that hadn't been lived in for five years. But anyway, I won't, I won't go there. Sorry. <laughs> I, I just wanted you to share my experience. It wasn't that bad. Neither Paul nor David, and we all, how many of you know the story of David and Goliath? I don't want to recount the whole thing, but I do want to get into a little bit of it today and next week. Neither Paul nor David were afraid of engaging the enemy. Let's travel back a thousand years for a few minutes to another Saul. If you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're talking about the anatomy of a giant killer. And I believe that this applies both in Old Testament, New Testament, and today. Now, Saul was the king of Israel, the first king of Israel, and he had been instructed by God through the prophet Samuel to completely destroy the Amalekites for how they treated the Israelites in their exodus from Egypt. How many of you know God's memory is very long? Very, very long. And so God said, now's the appointed time. Now I'm going to take this out on the Amalekites who, who were child sacrificers, who were horrible, I mean, I don't want to go there, but they were just really, really bad people. And God said in his judgment, today is the day of judgment. And I'm going to use Saul and the army of Israel to take it out on them. But the Bible shows us in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that Saul did not fully obey the Lord. Though Saul would argue that he obeyed the Lord, he did not fully obey the Lord. In fact, he kept the Amalekites, King Agag, alive along with all the sheep and the cattle. And that's where we come right into this. In verse 16 of 1 Samuel chapter 15. Out of the NLT it says, Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you? Saul asked. And Samuel told him, Although you may think little of yourself, Are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they're all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? 
Now, I want to kind of pull out one verse that we've highlighted there. Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. The Amplified Version says it this way. Even though you were small and insignificant in your own eyes. I want you to look up here for a second. This is the first king of Israel. In fact, the Bible declares, if you go back a chapter or two, that Saul was a, was, was a man to be reckoned with. He was a large man. He was a tall man. He was a strong man. He was a handsome man. And as he was chosen, God chose him, one of the reasons was because of how he looked, because the Israelites asked for a king, and he looked like a king. And the Bible also declares that he was not from a poor family. He was actually from a very wealthy family. He was from a family of great significance. Listen to this. He was from a wealthy family, a family of great significance. He was a huge guy. He had all of the looks of of a king. He had flowing hair. How many of you know that's got to be kingly, right? (laughs) Flowing hair. That's why I I really do. No, never mind. I was just going to say I want to be like Pastor Roger one day. God help me and David and the rest of us. And, and so here we are, and we're like, okay, this massive king. But what does the Bible say? What does Samuel say to Saul? He said, you think little of yourself. We're not talking about the first day of his kingship. We're talking about he's into this thing. He's already leading the armies. He's already got his palace. He's already doing this stuff. He is the king of Israel. But on the outside, he's the king. But on the inside, he's a pauper. He's insignificant. Saul saw himself as insignificant, even though he had been anointed and appointed by God to be king. Now, let's flip over in your Bible a little bit, and let's compare Saul to David. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 34 through 37. As I said, we know the story, so I'm just going to skip into the middle of this story. But before I do, David. Do you remember David, how he was chosen? His own father rejected him. His own brothers didn't acknowledge him. The people looked at him, and and the Bible does say he was handsome and ruddy. What is ruddy? I don't even know. I didn't look that one up in the Blue Letter Bible. Sorry. I don't know what ruddy is, but he was was a pretty good-looking kid. Everybody say kid. The Bible doesn't even describe him as a full-grown man, just as a kid. And yet with his father's rejection, the ridicule of his brothers, the lack of confidence even of King Saul to face the giant, we we dip ourselves right in the middle of the story when Saul and David are going back and forth about whether David should go up against Goliath. And verse 34, 1 Samuel 17 says, But David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I mean, we're talking, I mean, for me, I'm just going, this is a man's man right here. I mean, he is clubbing that thing. But let's keep going. And I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. 
for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. And Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said. And may the Lord be with you. And I almost hear Saul saying, oh, dear Jesus. (laughs) No. Almost like, oh, God, please, please be with him. Now, do you see the difference? Saul had every reason to be confident. David had every reason not to be confident. Yet they saw themselves differently. Watch this. When you see yourself as small and insignificant, you will see God in the same way. I need this to rest for a second. When you see yourself as small and insignificant, you look at God the same way. I'm not talking about humility. I'm not talking about those things. But sometimes we mask what is true biblical humility for what is actually insignificance, self-pity, and even pride. And we look at ourselves and we say, we can't do this, so therefore God can't do this. I can't face this giant, therefore God can't face this giant. Why didn't Saul call on the name of the Lord and say, you filthy giant? Saul should have been the one out there facing him. Why wasn't he? Because he saw himself as small. And insignificant. But watch this. When you see God as strong and powerful and able, you see yourself the same way. Now, obviously, I am talking about a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about self-promotion or self-pride. I'm talking about God-promotion and God-pride. I'm talking about looking at yourself as God sees you. And what did God say to Samuel about David? Because when Samuel saw him, actually when Samuel saw Eliab, David's older brother, he said, surely this is the one. And God said what? It's the famous verse. God does not look on the outward appearance, but he looks on the heart. And he saw inside David a trust, a humility, and yet a strength and a power that was put there by God himself. And David recognized that his God was able, therefore he is able. You need some New Testament to back it up. Here it goes. First John chapter 4, verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Look at Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Second Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and of love and of sound mind or self-discipline. And then I love this, Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read this out of the Passion Translation, which is a paraphrase. Listen to this. Jesus replied, while you were ministering, I watched Satan topple under until he fell suddenly from heaven like lightning to the ground. He's speaking to his disciples. 
He said, now you understand that I have imparted to you all my authority to trample over Satan's kingdom. You will trample upon every demon before you and overcome every power Satan possesses. Absolutely nothing will be able to harm you as you walk in his authority. However, your real source of joy isn't merely that these spirits submit to your authority, but that your names are in the journals of heaven and that you belong to God's kingdom. This is the true source of of your authority. Say authority. Say, I have authority. You see, as sons and daughters of the king, as those who belong to him, we have authority in his name. A giant killer has an attitude of authority and significance in Christ. We know who we are in him and who he is in us. Jesus said, I've given you authority. Why don't we pick it up? I've given you authority. If we want to face the struggles, the trials, the tribulations, if we want to face the things that are coming against us as a church, as a body, as a family, as an individual, the only way we're going to be able to face those things, I believe, is to recognize the authority that is already inside of us. Instead of looking to our own insignificance, look to his significance in us. So after Saul gives the green light for David to go into battle, he gave David his armor. And it says, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. You've got to see this. Remember, Saul was this, at this point, this huge man. David, according to what we see here in Scripture, was still a young man, maybe a teenager, maybe early 20s, but I believe probably a teenager, still young, still trying to get his feet. And here is an experienced warrior putting his armor, and he says, I cannot go in these. Because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Did you know that chapter 16 actually tells us that David and Saul already knew each other? Did you realize that? In fact, the Bible declares that not only did David play the harp when Saul was being tormented, but the Bible declares David as one of Saul's armor bearers. What does that mean? He probably had several armor bearers. But that means that he would pick up the equipment and take them to Saul. He would help fit Saul with his own armor. He would make sure, and and even at times go into battle, we don't see that in this case yet. Later on we do, but not yet. But the Bible declared David as an armor bearer to Saul. So David was familiar with the tunic and the sword and the armor he was putting on, but it wasn't fit for him. By now, David realized that he needed his own equipment to succeed, and that's our next point, is a giant killer has an attitude of contentment. It's the only word I could come up with. He has an attitude of contentment in what God has equipped him with. Now hear this. David was already equipped for the task of defeating the giant. 
David didn't need what Saul had. David needed what God had already given him. You know, I was thinking, and of course, there's, like Joni said, a lot of memories have come up with the wedding and family and then being at my parents' house yesterday and going through a lot of their stuff. When I was older, or excuse me, when I was younger, I remember going into my parents' house, not the one that we were at yesterday, but on Lipscomb Street. And I remember this memory so strongly that my daddy was home. He was somewhere probably eating biscuits and milk in his easy chair watching the news. And I remember walking into his closet and pulling out his boots. My dad was a cowboy. Lived in the city most of his life, but he was a cowboy. My uncles, his, his uncles, were all part of the King Ranch in Texas. M- massive. At one point, it was the largest ranch in America. They were cowboys. And I remember putting on my daddy's boots. Anybody ever put on your daddy's shoes or your mama's shoes when you were younger? Come on, anybody? I remember this. And I remember trying to walk around, you know, and they didn't fit. I had little feet at that time, and and he had these massive men feet, and I had these little boy feet, and they didn't fit. I couldn't run in them. I I couldn't do it. It was awkward walking around. Well, I remember also later on when I was older, and I had my man feet, I tried to put my daddy's boots on again because I thought, well, I would love to have a pair of my daddy's boots. You know what? They still didn't fit. I have pretty narrow feet, but he had super narrow feet. And, and, and they, would, they would squeeze in there, and it hurt my feet, and I, I couldn't even get my foot all the way in. Can I just say this? Other people's clothes won't fit you. You were made with distinct characteristics, strengths, and giftings for you. And when we try to put other people's equipment on, when we try to put other people's gift, oh, man, man, that guy right there. I, I, I remember this as a preacher. I used to do, oh, man, that guy could preach. Woo, man, I wish I could preach like that guy. And then I remember as my boys have grown up and now they're going into the ministry and they would bring me podcasts and they would bring me messages and say, oh, Dad, I want to preach like this guy one day. Man, this, this guy, not only does he preach well, but he's huge and he's buff. Some of you know who I'm talking about. And, and they'd be like, oh, man, he's just so awesome. I love this preacher. And, and they would go on and on, and I realized that was me at that age. And I would try. <laughs> I should tell the story about Detroit, shouldn't I? Okay, I'll tell the to- story about Detroit. Maybe we'll close here. I remember when we were in between ministry, between Montana and Florida, we had four kids and Joni was pregnant. No, no, we had three kids and Joni was pregnant with Emily at that time. So four kids, all under four years old at that point. And, and we were trying out at different places, and I heard through the grapevine my, my cousin Sam told me later when I tried out a place he um, recommended that the pastor called me and said well you know we've chosen to go a different direction blah 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 actually Sam found out that the pastor was afraid of bringing us on because we had so many kids they didn't know if they could feed us I said he doesn't even know my budget he didn't even ask me but that was okay because that wasn't the Lord's will but we were trying out and man finally we got a call and I got a call from Detroit, Michigan. Now, I don't know. Has anybody ever been to Detroit, Michigan in the house? Has anybody ever been to Detroit, Michigan in the winter? Now, we were coming from Montana, so I was like, maybe it won't be that bad. <laughs> Thankfully, it was springtime, 
and so we landed, and it was cold, and I remember going, and, and we saw the guy. I won't tell the whole story, but I remember the pastor had not told me that I was going to preach or teach or anything, but we were there, I think, for a Saturday night service, and we went. It was a multi-campus church, and we went to this one site that had about, I think they said it was about 275, 300 people, and they needed a youth pastor at that site, and they said, so, you know, you come, and, and, and you can come to this one and just be in the service, and this guy... <laughs> Oh, how much do I tell? He had the largest podium I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, this thing looked like an aircraft carrier. I mean, it was just massive. And I'm sitting in the crowd about where Joni is with Joni, and he's going and he says, and we've got, we've got a young man, and, he's, and this guy, this guy, this is no offense against anyone in the room, but, but he was kind of on the shorter side, if you know what I mean. And, and, and I'm kind of a little bit on the taller side. And so, you know, and, and so he gets up there and he's talking and he's, I don't know what he was doing, taking the offering, giving an announcement, something. And I could tell he had this kind of preacher voice. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to take the offering and God is going to bless you in this place. That kind of thing. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And then he says, and we've got a young brother here who's trying out for our youth pastor position. Would you come on up, brother Ricky? And as, as Joni is my witness and God is my witness, I got behind that massive aircraft carrier pulpit and I started to chuckle, not in the Holy Ghost, but I started to chuckle because I realized there were vents in that thing, air conditioning vents straight out of a car. I mean, it was like, ooh, this is kind of nice. Then the next thing I noticed is there was a little platform. And as I'm walking up, I noticed that the preacher is all of a sudden getting shorter and shorter, and shorter, and he's got a button here. He's got an elevator on the thing. I'm like, okay. So I step up there, and I'm, I'm tempted. I am tempted. Here I am today. But as God and Joni is my witness, I got up there, and I said, he said, take five minutes, Brother Ricky. And I said, I'm Ricky Frank. This is my wife, Joni. And I just want to tell you today that God is on your side and he is with you and he will. And I did. Is that not what happened? For five minutes, I went into this other persona I had never stepped into before. I got my TD Jakes on and I just went for it. And then I got off the podium and went down back to my seat. This is true. True story. The pastor had already offered us a package before. He said, this will be your salary, blah, blah, blah. I can't remember. It was five or $600 a week or something like that. And, uh, and we were like, "Woo! praise God, we hit the big time. And then he said to me after we went to lunch, and he said, oh, Ricky, I was, I was impressed with how you preached today. And I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to up that offer 100 bucks a week. And we thought, who are you, man? <laughs> Needless to say, we never went to Detroit, but that's another story. We finally made our way to, to glorious Florida. Here's the point. You can try on other people's tunics and stuff and giftings, but they're not for you. Look at your neighbor right now and say, you're unique. You have characteristics and, and giftings that God has given you and you're fully equipped. Look at your other neighbor and say, you're fully equipped. 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to close with this Scripture, though I'm not done. Would you stand? Ephesians chapter 3. Worship team, would you come? I'm telling you, from, literally from the worship, through Joseph, through Joni's word, I believe that God has been speaking to us today. And I want to end with Ephesians chapter 3. It says, and this, this is our prayer for you today. So this is what I want you to know. This is kind of unique, but I want you to just close your eyes. And as I read this scripture, I want you to take it as a prayer over you. And then we're going to sing. Ephesians 3.16 says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him, listen to this, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to tell you today, church, he wants to do more. More than you can imagine. And next week we'll pick it up, but I got to tell you, he's equipped you. You're ready. You're ready for the battle that is before you. You're ready. Whatever the enemy has got planned, God has already planned ahead of him. And he has equipped you with everything you need. When you surrender to him, when you recognize his authority, when you walk in that, you've already got all the equipment you need. Will he equip us with more? Yes, we'll talk about that. But right now, you're ready. Unless you're not. Because if you haven't surrendered your whole life to Christ, you're not ready. You're not ready. But can I tell you that a second after you surrender your life to Christ, you're ready. You're ready. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in this place today and you say, Pastor, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to meet Christ should I die today. I know I'm not fully equipped because I don't follow Christ. But today I want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ and follow him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I know I'm going to need his help to do it. But I'm ready to surrender my life to Christ. I'm ready to ask him to forgive me of my sins and I'm I'm ready to walk in his way instead of my own way. Would you raise your hand and say, that's me. That's me. I'm ready. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now let me ask you,
ask you another question. How many of you say in this room, Pastor, there are many times I feel insignificant and unprepared for what God has for me. Today, I want to walk in that authority. I want to walk in that authority that I know is mine because I'm a believer in Jesus. And I want to walk in that authority today. Would you raise your hand? Hallelujah. Come on. Listen, this is a struggle. I struggle with insignificance. I've struggled with it for years. But God knows. Father, I pray for those with their hands raised right now. God, that you would empower them, that you would fill them with your spirit, that in the name of Jesus, that insignificance would fall today and significance would rise up. 